Hello, you're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Since the early 19th century, the Greek peninsula and the Balkan states have been a hotbed of fervent nationalism. The nature of Greek identity became a rallying cry against the ruling Ottoman Empire during the War of Greek Independence in 1821, and the gradual political fragmentation in the Balkans for the next 150 years left the newly formed states desperate to establish some form of political legitimacy. In 1991, the Republic of Macedonia formally declared independence from Yugoslavia. Despite recognition by the United Nations, an outraged Greece cried out of the historical thievery and revisionism, claiming that Macedonians have always been considered Greek, not like the Slavic migrants who entered into the Byzantine Empire some 1300 years prior. Further gripes were voiced when the Republic incorporated Alexander as their representative hero, appearing upon their money and even having an airport named after him. Why is this background relevant? I feel the need to address the elephant in the room, largely because this is a sore subject that, despite my relative obscurity, will inevitably generate some mild controversy among listeners. The nature of Macedonians and whether they've been qualified as Greeks has been in debate even since before Alexander's birth. So I felt the need to clarify this before I deliver my evidence and state my beliefs. The earliest Greek source from Macedonian history comes from Herodotus, who relays a tale of the brothers of the house of the Temenids a lineage originally from Argos who also claimed descent from the heroic demigod Heracles. In the 7th or 6th century BC, one of the brothers, Perdiccas, manages to become involved with a portentous vision and is chased out of the kingdom of Illyria and by assassins from Libea, before ultimately settling into the land of what would become Macedon, establishing a tyranny and founding the house of the Argia dynasty, the same house Alexander and Philip II are descended from. Thucydides seems to agree on the ancestry of the Argiads, but does not include nor share the same story. Still, the Argia dynasty came to rule for the next several centuries. Whether or not the Macedonians were considered to be truly Greek was, and remains, a subject of contention. One piece of evidence put forth favoring Greek identity was during the reign of Alexander I, who put in a petition to be allowed to participate in the Olympic Games, an honor reserved only for recognized Hellenes. There was initial resistance, but after listing his ancestry back to the Temenids of Argos, he was allowed to compete in the foot race. Many point to this as being proof of the Macedonians as being Hellenes, but some care needs to be taken. It was all centered around the ancestry of the ruling dynasty, not the Macedonians as a people, and it was only Alexander who was allowed to participate in the games. The people of Macedonia were very unlike those of typical Greeks of the southern peninsula. There was a Macedonian language, separate from the Koine Greek, spoken by other poles, debatable whether or not it was actually descended from another variation of Greece, considering that it went extinct sometime in the Hellenistic period. And Alexander the Great, later in his career, angrily ordered his men in the Macedonian tongue to order, in order to arrest Clytus the Black, without letting the Greeks know what they were saying. There are numerous theories on how the concept of being a Hellene changed from an exclusively ethnic or linguistic denomination throughout the 5th and 4th century BC. Isocrates, an Athenian rhetorician, was a pioneer of this idea, quoting his panegyric, Our city has so far surpassed other men in thought and speech that students of Athens have become the teachers of others, and the city made the name Greek seem to be not that of a people, but a way of thinking. And people are called Greeks because they share in our education rather than our birth. In many ways, this rings true for the Argia dynasty. Philip II, and by extension Alexander, were proudly Philhellene monarchs, Philhellene translating to a lover of Greek culture. They were educated in the Greek style at the Macedonian court of Pella, 
famously by Aristotle in the case of Alexander. But the Archaea dynasty carried many attributes that would offend the notion of many Greeks, and their subjects even more so. Macedonia was a land located in the northern Balkans, its northern frontier dominated by truly barbarian Thracians and Illyrians, and it was relatively remote from the rest of Greece. The populace was dominated by a monarchy whose style would appear not too out of place from the tales in the Iliad or Dark Age Greece, where the king, the title of Basileos, was considered a man of the people, freely allowing close confidants and subjects to have access to the king's ear to voice complaints and petitions. The ruling Argiads would also be subject to the whims of a number of dominant aristocratic households. It was only in the reign of Philip where these nobles were wrangled into something that was more controllable, and the powers of the Basileos subsequently increased. More scandalously, the king would take several wives as a form of political marriages, compared to the more monogamous relations of the Greeks, and this will lead to all sorts of issues in both the reigns of Philip and Alexander. There was also the accusation of the Macedonians being notorious drinkers. Typical Greek fashion was to moderately consume wine mixed with water at a symposium or drinking party, whereas the Macedonians loved heavy sessions of drunken partying that would put modern fraternities to shame. There is a common theory that Alexander himself was succumbing to alcoholism later in life, leading to some of his more outrageous behaviors like the burning of Persepolis or the killing of Calidus the Black. In some respects, this may be overblown as it was a common criticism amongst moralist Greeks and Romans to accuse people of being drunkards as the cause of their downfall. In any case, the Argeid household was no stranger to this barbaric practice of drinking unmixed wine. One Greek attitude towards the Macedonians as having a sense of otherness can be found in the speeches called the Philippics by the Athenian orator Demosthenes, who launched into a series of angry tirades against the Macedonians and Philip II, these would serve later as a model for a similar series of speeches performed by the Roman orator Cicero against Mark Antony, entitled the Philippics for the very same reason. Demosthenes emphasized the otherness of Philip and encouraged his fellow Greeks to revolt against the alleged tyranny of the Basileos. Demosthenes himself will also continue to show no signs of slowing down into his attacks well into the reign of Alexander. Given the evidence, I can certainly say that the Macedonians were not Slavic, but, in my opinion, the Macedonian ruling class, much like the story of Herodotus, was to be considered Greek by the standards of what it meant to be a Hellene. The common populace of Macedonia, on the other hand, would probably lean towards more of a barbarian style, given the lack of access of a Philhellenic education and practices, fully emphasizing the more aggressively Macedonian behaviors. Returning back to a sense of narrative, we can accurately speak of the reign of King Alexander I, who came to the throne around 498 BC, the same one who I mentioned before tried to get petitioned into the Olympic Games. Unfortunately, he was given a rather unpleasant time to assume the throne, because the armies of Darius I were knocking on his doorstep by 492, where the general Mardonius effectively incorporated Macedonia as a province in the Persian Empire, reducing him from his previous vassal status that the previous king Amintas I was given making Alexander a nominal king at best. Indeed, reflecting his lowered rank, Mardonius sent Alexander as a representative to Athens in order to deliver the demands of the great king. After the defeat of the first invasion of Greece at Marathon in 490, Alexander remained in control of the Persians, being required to later supply troops and protect the Persian-controlled cities of Boeotia during the invasion of Xerxes. The end of the Greco-Persian Wars provided a turn of fortunes for Alexander, 
where he was able to secure Macedonian independence and slaughter the retreating armies of Xerxes, who were fleeing back to Asia Minor. Unfortunately, the fortunes of Alexander appeared to reverse once again, when the tribes of Macedonia effectively remained autonomous of the king, and the king died with a fractured state in 454. His heirs, particularly Perdiccas II, managed to gather enough forces to combat the growing power of the Delian League multiple times throughout the 440s and 430s. In the opening of the Peloponnesian War, Macedonia sided with the Spartans, before switching back and forth between Athens and Sparta. Ultimately, they were forced to sue for peace with Athens in 414. Perdiccas' successor, Archelaus I, managed to enact some internal changes in 413 onwards. He took the royal capital at Agiae, the same famous location where a number of royal burials, very likely including Philip II himself, were uncovered in the 1970s, and moved it to Pella, and attracted some educational figures like the playwright Euripides to his court. Unfortunately, Archelaus I was assassinated in 399, and Macedonia was plunged into an unstable period that saw 13 kings in under 30 years. We see a watershed moment, however, with the birth of Philip II in 382 BC, the youngest son of King Amyntas III. In my opinion, Philip II is one of the more under-recognized figures in history, largely due to being outshone by his prodigal son Alexander the Great. But from an early age on, Philip demonstrated relatively little prospects of even ruling Macedonia. He was sent to the then-dominant hegemon Thebes at a young age as a political prisoner, being given an education and military training at the court of the leader Epenondidas. Being sent back to Pella in roughly 364, Philip was third in line to the throne and had little chance in actually getting access to it. But fate had other things in mind, when both of his brothers Alexander II and Perdiccas III were both slain in battle at the hands of tribal Illyrians, and Philip was left to pick up the pieces of his now extremely vulnerable kingdom. To the astonishment of everyone involved, Philip managed to not only keep his kingdom afloat, but managed to turn it into the premier power of the Aegean through a combination of diplomatic maneuvering, talented generalship, and revolutionary reforms to the Macedonian army, which I plan to go into much more detail in the next episode. Philip defeated an Athenian invasion, subdued the tribes of the Illyrians, and diplomatically forestalled an invasion by a Thracian king within the span of one year in 359 to 358. Philip was also able to secure the support of a Thessalian city of Larissa and gain a few wives in the process at the same time, making Philip a very effective multitasker and the dominant power in northern Greece. For the next two decades, Philip and the various powers of the Greek world engaged in times of conflict and times of peace, neither side ever truly content until one is laid to heel. The decisive and final turning point of the clash came to pass in 338 at the Battle of Chaeronea, Philip was faced by a coalition of nearly all the major powers of Thebes, Athens, and Corinth. In a grand display of leadership by both Philip and the leader of his companion cavalry, the Greeks were absolutely crushed. Philip, given his new mastery of the peninsula, formed the League of Corinth, and established himself as Strategos Autocrator, the supreme commander of the Greeks, who formed part of the League. They were to contribute levies of troops for any campaign should Philip decide to launch. In his nearly 30-year reign, Philip was able to achieve what no power, Greek or no, had been able to do in the last several centuries. He was able to turn his fragmented and on the verge of collapsing kingdom into the supreme ruler of all of Greece, 
politically tying each city-state to him personally. If anyone that lacks the title The Great deserves it, Philip the Certainly is among the very top candidates. While one would think Philip would be looking to rest on his laurels, it turns out that Philip, not just content with all of Greece, had his now one eye, the other horribly mangled and lost years before, on a much fatter prize, the Persian Empire. With his supremely seasoned and talented Macedonian army, he would look towards campaigning across the Hellespont into Asia. The fates would decide against this, however, as such a task would instead be delegated to his son, a developing prodigy of military genius and bravery who demonstrated his skills at the Battle of Chaeronea, commanding the Companion Cavalry, Alexander the Great. Thank you all for listening. If you liked this episode and want to see more, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review on iTunes under Hellenistic Age Podcast. I'm also on SoundCloud under the same name. Or if you have any questions and just want to comment, give me a shout at HellenisticAgePodcast at gmail.com, and I'll make sure to provide all these links in the episode description. Till next time, I'll speak with you guys later in the next episode.